Hi there, I'm Jake Humphrey. This is High Performance, the podcast that reminds you it's within. Your ambition, your purpose, your story are all there. We just help unlock it by turning the lived experiences of the planet's highest performers into your life lessons. So right now, allow myself and Professor Damien Hughes to speak to one of the greatest academics and thinkers on the planet so that he can be your teacher. Today, this awaits you. I think that what stops most of us from achieving high performance or even higher performance is that we're more interested in improving ourselves than we are in improving ourselves, right? So we're, we're trying to, to feed our egos as opposed to fuel our growth. And I think if you have a group of people around you, just like an athlete would with a coach, um, who are solely there to ask, how can I help you get better? Um, it's, it's really hard not to grow. And I think we should show that work much more often. Can I criticize in a way that actually makes you better? One of my favorite experiments showed that you could say about 19 words to dramatically increase people's openness to criticism. And those 19 words are roughly, I'm giving you these comments because I have very high expectations and I'm confident that you're going to reach them. The everyday flickers of doubt of wondering, am I as good as other people think I am? And if you don't have those, you're at risk for arrogance or narcissism. If you never doubt whether other people are overestimating you, then you are not putting yourself in a position to keep growing and challenging yourself. So today we welcome Adam Grant to the High Performance Podcast. I always kind of hate this bit in some ways because how do you sum up someone as fascinating and interesting as Adam Grant in 30 seconds? So basically, um, what you need to know is he's an organizational psychologist. He is one of the world's leading experts on how you can find motivation, how you can find meaning in your life, rethinking the way that you see the world, living a more generous and creative life. And he's been recognized as one of the 10 most influential management thinkers in the world. He's the number one New York Times bestselling author of five books. They are fantastic. I can't recommend them highly enough. And I think um, probably on his website, right, if you go to adamgrant.net, the first quote on there is, the most meaningful way to succeed is to help others succeed. And I think in so many ways, that sums up what this conversation on high performance is all about. He is one of the brightest, most engaging and interesting of guests that we've had. And if you follow him on social media, you'll already know the way that he thinks and operates. I mean, this is something that he put on Twitter a few days ago, which I think is fantastic. He says, changing your mind is not a sign of losing integrity. It's a mark of gaining wisdom. Realizing you were wrong doesn't mean you lack judgment. It means you lacked knowledge. Opinions are what you think today. Growth comes from staying open to revising your views tomorrow. And I love that, man. We live in this world, don't we, where if anyone changes their mind, everyone dives upon them. We need to stop that, man. Let's all be able to make mistakes and change our minds and make what the, the press call U-turns without everyone diving on us. So Adam's going to talk about building culture, communicating better with people, dealing with the crap stuff that life throws our way. This is a really empowering episode that I hope will equip you for a great 2023. It really is a good one. So let's get to it and welcome Adam Grant to the High Performance Podcast. Lads, are you making sure that every part of you is high performance this Christmas? And I mean, even the parts that people don't see very often. Because today we're working with Manscaped on the High Performance Podcast and they have got the lawnmower 4.0. So if you want to make sure that every part of your body is looking how it should, then the lawnmower 4.0 body trimmer and the weed whacker nose hair and ear trimmer might just be the thing for you. Plus, both are waterproof, so... um 
you know, there's no issues clearing the snow out of your driveway, so to speak. Um, so if you want people to say, all I want for Christmas is you, then maybe you should think about going to manscaped.com forward slash high performance for free shipping and 20% off. Make sure you look your best and feel your best at the start of 2023. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, Adam, first of all, welcome to High Performance. It's a pleasure to have you with us. What is High Performance, Adam? I think of high performance as achieving excellence um, and not just achieving it once, but being able to sustain it over time. And do you feel you're there? Never. I've, I hope that my performance keeps getting higher, but it seems like an impossible standard that I'm always approaching and then falling short of and then raising the bar. It's interesting this because we speak to a lot of people who understand the power of getting close without quite getting there. Do you feel you're, are you close to excellence? I think I'm closer than I've ever been before. And how every day do you keep going to try and get closer? What are the tools that you employ? One of the things I, I find really motivating is worrying that I'm going to let other people down. I, I think often I do my best work when I know other people are depending on me. And that, <laughs> that pressure it's not all pressure. Um, you know, some of it is, you know, is a sense of, of responsibility and gratitude, but it's gone up, up over time as, you know, I guess as my books and, and podcasts and TED Talks have reached a bigger audience, I felt like there are more people counting on me to produce interesting, useful insight. And I wake up in the morning thinking, if I don't have a thought that other people find valuable, then I've had a pretty bad day. <laughs> I'm, I'm wasting my time. And that, that motivates me to, to keep try to, trying to generate knowledge. But that really intrigues me, Adam. Like, I, I, I was thinking this about you recently. I saw you post about talking about, um, you use the example of Martin Luther King's speech and the, the importance of leaders having to repeat the message. And when you're tired of it, that's when you need to repeat even more. And what I was wondering was, how tired do you get of having to go out and search for 
this kind of knowledge and then to try and weave it into a story that then engages. That's quite a demanding process. I cannot feel more differently about it. I think I have the greatest job on earth that I get to go and read and learn about anything I think is interesting and call that my job, right? That basically my, my, one of my core responsibilities at work is to be curious and to, to be a disciplined learner. And I, I can't imagine a more meaningful or exciting job than that, right? That I, I, get, to, um, I get to do this, this whole discovery process um, and I can say, yep, that's, that's actually in my job description. So what are you curious about at the moment? At the moment? I am curious about what you're curious about and what, what the high-performance audience most wants to know. Right, okay. What do the high-performance audience most want to know? What, what would you say, Damien? Because I think we know our audience quite well. What do they most want to know? What's the most value that Adam could give them? Well, I think there's something really intriguing, Adam, about your work. And Jake and I were talking about this before we came on. I think one of the most powerful pieces of work that you've ever produced has been that last chapter of your book, Think Again, where you share the first draft of that book after people have finished the completed version. And that was the bit that, to me, really resonated above all else, because... A lot of my work and where my interest lies is the work in the shadows, the stuff that nobody ever sees that eventually leads to the high performance. And I think that's what this podcast tries to shine a light in those shadows. So you're a guy that delivers, like you've won these awards for, the, for your teaching skills and for the way you engage. Take us into the shadows. How do you do that? <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that that was what stuck out at you because that was... That was an agonizing experience for me to go from telling my students, look, I'm writing a book about rethinking and I don't want it to end. And I, I just want the, the last chapter, I want to do an epilogue and it's just going to be a blank page. And the, the message is, is, look, I'm still open to rethinking everything. And they hated that idea with the burning passion of a thousand suns. Who did? The publisher or your students? <laughs> My students said, this is the worst idea you've ever had. <laughs> you can't have a blank page. Your responsibility as an author is to, you know, to, to really have something to, to leave us with, right? To, to, you know, something poignant or moving or, or even just funny, right? That will, will leave us, that will keep us thinking. And, I, I fought back a couple of times and I said, conclusions are the dumbest part of a book. I'm not writing a book report. I don't need to tell you what I already told you. You can go back and reread it if yeah. you want to. You can re-listen to it. It's not that hard, right? And finally, one of my students said, you know, what, what I would really love is if you showed us your process and how you rethought along the way. And I resisted that idea. I'm like, no, I don't, I don't want to show you all the garbage and drivel that I've thrown out. I'm trying to protect you from that as a reader or a listener. <laughs> but the more I thought about it, the more I realized that when people are at the top of their game, we, we find them almost, almost unattainable. Yeah. Right? They, they seem so great that they're, they're out of reach for mere mortals. And they're supposed to be inspiring, but they just become daunting. And I thought, okay, the, the best way to show how difficult this work is of, of trying to get to high performance is to actually show the work behind the scenes along the way, the shadows. And I think part of the reason that, that I wanted to, 
I guess, to be transparent about that was to say, look, a huge part of whatever high performance I've achieved in the eyes of others, even if I don't think I've, I've gotten there yet and met my own goals, is having a, a challenge network, a group of people who are thoughtful critics who hold up a mirror and help me see my own blind spots more clearly. And that's, that's what that group of students did when they were reading drafts of my, my book chapters. They would tear them apart in service of trying to make them better. And I think that what stops most of us from achieving high performance or even higher performance is that we're more interested in improving ourselves than we are in improving ourselves. Yeah. Right. So we're, we're trying to, to feed our egos as opposed to fuel our growth. And I think if you have a group of people around you, just like an athlete would with a coach, um, who are solely there to ask, how can I help you get better? Um, it's, it's really hard not to grow. And I think we should show that work much more often. Which... Again, so I, I mean, I love you explaining it because I thought it was incredibly brave. But as I say, that was a bit that really resonated because that idea of almost suffusing your ego, being able to put your ego to one side to go, this is what I did do. And this is the ideas that didn't work or the feedback that was a bit bruising. And I'm interested in how do you go about doing that? Well, I think I, I learned it early on when I, I was afraid of public speaking early on. And as a shy introvert, I was just extremely uncomfortable getting on stage. And I said, the only way to get over this is to practice. And I've got to, <laughs> I've got to seek out the very experience that, you know, that makes me cringe. So I started volunteering to give guest lectures in my friends' classes when I was in grad school. And I, I said, every lecture, I'm going to give out a feedback form, and I'm going to ask the students what I could do better. And I'm not going to have the benefit of a relationship with the audience where I have a whole semester to earn their trust and, you know, show how much I care about them. I'm just going to get evaluated by people who saw me for an hour. So what questions did you ask on that feedback form that our listeners could, could maybe think about adopting? It was really simple. It was, what can I do better? Uh, what should I do more of? And what should I change? And that's it. Yeah, I've evolved that approach over time when I have more more targeted goals for what I'm trying to work on. But it, at that point, I just, <laughs> I wanted to know everything. And the feedback was brutal. I had one student write that I was so nervous, I was causing them to physically shake in their seats. Another wrote that I reminded them of a Muppet because I moved so awkwardly. And they never told me which one. <laughs> but I remember reading that feedback and thinking, I can't change that perception. I can't convince them that I wasn't nervous uh, or that you know, I come across as really smooth on stage. All I can do is try to make a better impression the next time. And later, uh, my colleague Sheila Heen told me there's a name for what I was doing. She said, you're giving yourself a second score. Um, the first score was garbage and you can't change it. And most of us are obsessed. Like Those students were giving me clearly you know, C minus, D plus, not a good mark. Right? And most of us, we try to change that score. We fight with the judge. Uh, we, we go to the teacher and tell us, no, no, I really deserved an A. And what I have found enormously helpful throughout my career is, is realizing I can't change the first score. All I want to do is ace the second score, which is the response to the first score. So I want to get an A plus for how well I take the C minus. And, and that idea of just saying, you know what? I'm going to rate myself on how well I take feedback as opposed to, you know, asking, do I want to accept the feedback or not has made it so much easier to learn from the people around me. I love that. We interviewed an entrepreneur who told us that make your comeback bigger than your setback, which seems to capture exactly what you're saying. That's a great way of phrasing it. And it's, it's the kind of thing that I think comes in handy in, in situations where you're not prepared 
to be criticized. Right? It's easy to take other people's feedback when you've sought it out um, or when you have a relationship with somebody who is your coach or your mentor. Right? I think the hardest moments are the ones where, where somebody you know, just, there's actually research on this. Um, a group of my colleagues have called it a, a swoop and poop. <laughs> where basically somebody flies in, they, they drop a bunch of crap on you, uh, and then you, good luck, right? You have to clean up the mess. And I think those situations are where it's most critical to be able to, to give yourself that second score and say, okay, I've got I've to ace my response to this mess, not, not claim I didn't make a mess in the first place or you know, point fingers at, at the people who dumped it on me. So can I ask you for a bit of advice, please? Bring it on. Aside from this podcast, I work as a as a football presenter, a sports presenter, a sports host here in the UK, and I get just pelters of abuse on social media every single time I'm on the telly. And part of my brain goes, "Well, it's it's unfounded nonsense." You know, people assume, you know, he's so bad he must have had a family member in TV, right? Which is not true. Or oh, he's such a posh kid. <laughs> also, not true. Just like state school educated, but. Every time I do it, I get that. And I, I'm, to- I'm well aware that if you do my job, that will happen. But I still find it really hard to deal with what I think is unfair criticism. So the only way I think I deal with it is just by saying to myself, well, they're all idiots. They must be jealous. Like, what is the way that I should be dealing with that sort of criticism that I think is unfounded? Because just ignoring it, it still doesn't hurt any less. Yeah, I actually think it's a really interesting question. And it captures something that, that everybody lives a version of now. My first comment would be to say, it's interesting to observe your reaction to it, right? So <laughs> I think one of the mistakes that, that people make when, you know, when they face criticism is they're, they're basically responding from a place of, of saying, okay, I've got to defend myself, right? And psychologists would call it the totalitarian ego, where it's like there's a mini dictator who lives in your head and it's controlling the flow of information to your brain a little bit like Kim Jong-un controls the press, right? So only good gets in and we're going to filter out all the bad. And that's obviously a missed opportunity for learning because there might be a signal in all that noise. And so if you, if you get defensive or you tune it out altogether, you're basically saying there is nothing that my audience has to say that can teach me anything or make me better at my work. And you don't want to go there. And that's why you haven't stopped reading it altogether, right? You still scroll on social media. And then you end up letting in too much of the criticism and it just drags you down, right? It kills your motivation. So the question is, what do you do instead? So why do you think that criticism makes you so upset? Um, I think it makes me so upset because it is, because I feel like I can't do anything about it. So I try the, the hardest I can to be as good as I can at being a TV presenter and it doesn't make any difference. And it also, it also annoys me because it changes the way I behave, right? I, like we, You've said it perfectly. You know, we spend our time proving ourselves rather than improving ourselves. It forces me down the road of proving myself. So instead of like, I'll just, I will just do something that is ego driven. I'll put something on social media that's ego driven. And then that brings more criticism. I think, shit, why did I, why did I feel the need to prove that or tweet that or share that? But I know why. It's because I'm kind of, I'm trying to fight back, you know, and I don't really know how. I don't think any of us do. I think one of the things I've found helpful in, in this situation is to be clear about who my audience is, mm-hmm. my intended audience, right? So I, I find myself thinking a lot, why do I care about the opinions of complete strangers? Like, <laughs> why, why am I trying to tr- prove myself yeah. to people who are not necessarily knowledgeable about the work that I do? Are we not just hardwired to, to care? 
Probably. I, I'm, you, could, you could tell a very convincing evolutionary story about how social exclusion was a threat to survival. Uh, I think we're wired to care, but there's no reason why we have to care equally about everyone. Right? There's, a, there's, a no, there's no reason why you have to let that, that evolutionary circuitry um, you know, sort of hijack your rational thought. And so I think going in, I think every time you're, you're calling a game, right? the first thing I would want to know is, who are the people whose assessment of, you know, of your skill really matter to you? And I would go to those people first. Right before you look at what the the random audience has to say, knowing that they're always going to be critics and they're always going to be angry fans uh, or rivals, right? Yeah. I'd want to know well whose whose judgment do you really trust and value, and can you seek their feedback first? And once you do that, you're probably going to feel a little bit more secure. You're going to know what kind of criticism is valid and and what is probably a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit less credible. Um, and then maybe you can filter a little bit better. Have you ever tried that? Um, I, I had one experience where I was getting pelters and then a colleague of mine who I really respect sent me a message to say how great, and Damien knows this story, saying, you know, you're fantastic at what you do. And that was a great moment for me. But, and I like to say, oh yeah, then I really changed and thought, you know, that they, they don't count, she counts. No, <laughs> that wasn't what happened. I'll be totally honest. Um, because it feels like an overwhelming flood. And, I, and I'm sure also, you know, we could talk about an evolutionary story of the fact that we are hardwired to see the negative and ignore the positive. And that's definitely something that I know a lot of our listeners struggle with, you know, at the start. Yeah. What would your listeners most like to hear? Like, let's be totally frank, how to be happier, how to be more positive, how to feel better when we wake up in the morning. Isn't that probably what all of us are constantly looking for? In some ways, although I think that a lot of people are willing to accept more negativity in order to get to higher performance. And yeah. that's part of why they listen to this show in the first place, right? Yeah, but yeah. It's interesting to think about this, this basic problem of, yeah, bad is stronger than good empirically, right? Negativity bias is well documented over multiple decades. And you're right. There's a good reason for that, too. If you, if you ignored the compliment, nothing bad will happen to you. If you didn't see the threat, uh, you might not make it to tomorrow. We allow ourselves to, I think, react to, you know, to social information, to feedback, to failure, to rejection, um, as if it is a life-threatening event when it's not. And I think I'm getting the, the sense that you don't have a clear definition of what high performance is when you call a football match. Because if you did, you would immediately be able to look at the fan comments or the social media complaints and say, which of these are relevant to whether I was successful today yeah. and which ones aren't. And you would have done your own immediate review of what you did well and what you did poorly. And you might have had some things that you, know, that you could see more clearly and others that were a little bit more blurry. But then you'd be able to take all of the comments that you're getting and say, okay, some of these are about things that are not relevant to my definition of performance. And so it doesn't matter what, you know, what those people think. So how do you define high performance in that role as a commentator? Um, I think the role for me is getting the most out of the pundits. I, you, know, you have to understand that when you're the presenter, you're not there to be the superstar. So it's, it's telling the story and it is asking the question that the audience at home want to hear. And I, I actually, I think I am good at that. But the problem is, it's not like I'm the footballer who knows whether I've scored a goal and picked up three points or missed a chance and lost the game. Like there is no win or lose. It's not, it's not tangible like that. So that's where the challenge comes from for me, I think. Yeah, so you're dependent on subjective feedback instead of objective results. Exactly. And also when you're live on the telly, um, it's a bit like when you do a podcast episode, you know, you don't really know, I don't think whether, you know if it's gone okay or not, but you don't really know because you're so in it. You think, well, I think that was all right, but I don't really know. You, you're trying to filter 
so many layers of information when you're broadcasting live that actually, whether it was any good or not, is almost the 16th thing down the list, you know? Yes, although I think you you just gave an interesting solution to that, right? Which is if your goal as the presenter is to bring out the best in the pundits, right? Their feedback is much more valuable in some ways than the audience feedback, right? On whether you gave them a chance to shine, uh, whether you, you know, you brought out a version of themselves that they might not have been able to bring out if you weren't there. You know what? That is the perfect. And actually, now when you say that, I smile because I'm always having conversations with the guys where they go, oh man, I love working with you. You know, you always make me feel good. You make me relaxed. And thanks for that. Well, that, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not going to say they're your only audience, right? <laughs> no. But in some ways, they're yeah, your yeah, primary yeah, I audience. See it. Yeah, yeah. And if it goes well with them, then on balance, right, it should lead to better feedback from viewers. So Adam, then, let's go back to that work in the shadows for you, for when you described about being really clear about what your audience won. And I'm, I'm really intrigued about how you've won these awards for being Wharton's best professor for seven consecutive years, because that's taking information that in somebody else's hands might be quite dry or bland or anodyne. And yet, having read your work and seen your stuff, you do make it dance, you do bring it to life, and you do do it in an incredibly engaging way. So what I'm interested in is the process that you go through to get to that end goal. Like, tell us the equivalent of that last chapter of the book where, where, you know, where you broke down the processes you get through. Because there's lots of our listeners that maybe are working in selling paper clips. There's teachers that are going into classrooms where they're having to engage children. There's parents trying to get kids to do something that they might not want to do. And I think your lessons from that in the shadows have got an awful lot to teach us all. Well, I think it, it starts for me with, I had the great fortune to have some extraordinary teachers who changed the way I saw the world. And I really wanted to pay that forward. What that experience early on taught me was that good teachers are passionate about the material they teach, but great teachers are passionate about the students they teach. I think that the time that I spent early on working to get to know my students really shaped who I became as a teacher. For me, a lot of that really came from the, the anxiety I had in the classroom. I thought, well, I'm really intimidated by these brilliant students, and I want to make sure that, you know, that, that I have something of value to contribute to them. So I'm, I'm going to do everything in my power to get to know them. So I, I ended up coming into the first day of class having memorized every student's name. And I asked them to put their name cards down, and I went around the room and, and, and named them all. And they were stunned. And of course, then I beat myself up afterward because I missed a couple names and I made a mistake and I, I confused two students who looked alike. Um, but what they were reacting to was that I had put the time in to try to get to know them before I showed up at class. And that was a clear signal that I cared. And it's amazing how few people do that work, right? It's not, it's not hard. It's brute force. And you can, you can apply memory tricks, right? You can do spaced repetition. You can quiz yourself. You can build a memory palace, right? There are lots of techniques that, that amplify your ability to, to retain that information and recall it in the moment. And I, I definitely apply those. But it was just saying, I'm going to commit a few hours to looking at their photos, right? And committing their names to memory. And that will start off the class with the element of surprise, um, it's a way to make a great first impression. And I think the reason that <laughs> that was impressed upon me was when I think I was 25, I had just finished my doctorate. I was asked to teach a group of, um, of colonels and generals in the U.S. Air Force. And I, I walked into this room and it was like a scene out of Top Gun. <laughs> These guys had flown thousands of hours. They had multi-billion dollar budgets and they were literally heroes. 
And I thought my job was to convince them that I was an expert and I had a lot to teach them. Yeah, I started talking about my credentials and I was trying to impress them. And the feedback was even tougher than what I got from my early students. I remember one of the one of the one of the people in the audience had written, "There's more knowledge in the audience than on the podium." Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you, you all are twice my age, and you're really accomplished. But then another one wrote, "I gained nothing from this session, but I trust that the instructor gained useful insight." It's like a dagger to the heart, and. I, I want to quit at that point. I'm, like, I'm going to crawl into a hole. I'm never going to teach a group of you know of senior leaders again. But I had already committed to do a second session. And I take my integrity really seriously. If I tell you I'm going to do something, uh, I follow through. So not showing up or backing out is non-negotiable. And I don't have any time to reinvent my material. <laughs> I have to show up a couple days later. So all I can do is change the way I present myself. And I show up. I look around the room. It's the same kind of room. They've got their nicknames. Uh, they have call signs. They're Striker, Sand Dune, <laughs> Gunner. And I, I'm staring at these tough guys. And I say, I know what you're thinking right now. What could I possibly learn from a professor who's 12 years old? <laughs> and nobody reacts. Stunned silence. And I'm sitting there for what feels like an eternity. And finally, one of the guys pipes up and says, oh, that's ridiculous. You got to be at least 13. <laughs> and the whole room started cracking up and I more or less taught the same content but it changed the relationship I had with the audience and afterward the feedback forms were night and day different they said things like although junior and experienced he dealt with the data in an interesting way and it was it was great to learn about motivating millennials from a professor who's almost young enough to be one (laughs) and that was a really different approach than, you know, memorizing my own students' backgrounds. But it was the same thing in essence, which is to say, I am here to build a connection. And what I want to show you is that I'm aware of what's going on in your head, right? I know, I, I know you're questioning whether I am qualified to teach you. And the fact that I have the self-awareness to realize that and the humility to say it out loud um, hopefully shows to them right, that, uh, that maybe, maybe we can have an interesting conversation over the next few hours and we can learn things from each other. And I think that that stance to me is, is the beginning of trying to achieve excellence in anything you do. So how do you do that then on a wider scale? You know, like when you do your books, for example, and you have to, where you don't have that in the room connection but you've got an audience of like uh, just a homogenous mass of people that you're trying to bring the idea of rethinking to a mass audience. How do you go about that connection then? You know, early on, I tried to do it by sort of writing what I knew. And I wrote a a first draft of my first book, Give and Take. I sent it to my brand new literary agent. And he said, to be totally honest with you, I don't even think your academic colleagues are going to want to read this book. Start over. And I threw out 102,000 words and started over from scratch. And he gave me a piece of advice that I think about almost every day when I write. He said, write like you teach, not like you write a research paper. And what that gave me was a litmus test to say, would I open a class with this experiment? Is it interesting enough that it would have my students at the edge of their seats? And that helped me weed out a lot of information that didn't need to go in a book. But it also reminded me that when I teach a class, Um, The element of surprise is incredibly important. If I were to tell you that you are much more effective if you could bring your team with you uh, that you've worked with before, you'd say, duh, 
Of course, I already know that. If I instead say to you, it turns out that in this incredible study that Huckman and Pisano did, uh, where they studied cardiac surgeons, and they wanted to know, how many cardiac surgeries do you have to do with minimally invasive technology before your patient mortality rate drops? How many reps do you have to do before you climb up the learning curve? What do you think that number is? All of a sudden, they're curious. Like, well, I don't know the answer to that. And people throw out guesses. And some people say, well, you've got to do 10 of them before you start to develop some expertise. Other people say 100. And then somebody will say, I don't know, however many it takes 10,000 hours. And I get to say, you're all wrong. Because in their data, the answer is infinity. Reps never make you better. How could that be? That's so weird. Patients are every bit as likely to die on surgery number 100 as they were on surgery number one. That does not make sense. It flies in the face of everything we know about high performance. Well, guess what? Huckman and Pisano realized in their study that they had surgeons operating at different hospitals. And when they broke down their data by different hospitals, they found that every surgery you did at hospital A reduced your patient mortality rate by about 1%. But tomorrow, when you go to hospital B, it's like you're starting over. You're a complete novice. And you don't benefit from the practice you had at hospital A. And what's going on there, of course, is the team around you really matters. The shared experience with anesthesiologists and nurses and medical tech staff ends up really having a huge impact on your ability to perform a successful surgery. And when I tell you the story that way, all of a sudden, Wow, I never realized how critical it was, even in work that's supposed to depend on individual geniuses using their minds and their hands to save lives, um, how much the interdependent system of collaboration around them matters. And that to me is the essence of, you know, of building a relationship with an audience is to ask you a question that you really don't know the answer to um, and set up that surprise. So is that known as the gap theory then, Adam? Is it Because that sounds to me, I love that idea because any one of us could do that, can't we? Once we've built that connection is to create that gap, the gap theory in our knowledge, and then your job is to help them answer it. Is that an accurate read? I think that's part of it. So yes, um, the the George Lowenstein theory of of curiosity that says, basically, you create a gap between what people know and what they want to know, and then it becomes like an itch that they have to scratch. That's the first phase. But then it's not enough just to have a gap. Because if I introduce you to a really boring, obvious answer, um, you're not going to care. Right. Or you're going to be disappointed because there was this big setup and then the reveal is a total dud. You know, it it would be like if now somebody tried to make The Wizard of Oz and you find out at the very end, it's it's just a dream. Like, wait, we've seen that before. Like, nope, you, you can't you can't create this high stakes situation and then tell me none of it was real and it didn't even matter. So I think the answer has to be something that that is either novel or practical. And in this case, I think the the fact that you depend much more on your collaborators than you realize is extremely practical. Right? We have all kinds of people during this great resignation that we're going through who have quit their jobs and said, I want to go work somewhere else. And what they didn't think about was, well, maybe I should take my team with them, with me. Maybe, maybe I should negotiate that the person who brings out the best in me is actually going to become part of a dynamic duo and we're going to leave together. Um, and that's, I think that's you know, just, it's a novel answer, not just a, a novel question. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I think it's really good for people. I think it makes me want to know how do you determine who gets to be part of your crew and your gang? How how do you recruit? So my most valuable coaches and critics are people that I've come to call disagreeable givers. The first question is, if you think about the personality trait of agreeableness, disagreeableness, um, are people more on the agreeable side where they're warm, friendly, polite, Canadian? <laughs> Or on the disagreeable side, are they more critical, skeptical, uh, overrepresented among engineers and lawyers, and maybe a little more British than I am? That, I think, is, is important because we know that agreeable people often hesitate to, to dish out tough love. Um, they're often afraid to hurt other people's feelings. They don't want to rock the boat. They're trying to be, be you know, sort of supportive and maintain harmony. And so I found that people who are disagreeable are much less likely to bite their tongues and more likely to tell me the truth. But their motives really matter, too. So when I've studied the differences between givers and takers, a disagreeable taker is going to maybe criticize me for personal gain uh, or, you know, to try to feel smart. A disagreeable giver is going to ask, can I criticize in a way that actually makes you better? And they're, you know, they're challenging you because they care about you and they want to help. And so what I've tried to do is I've tried to look at who are the people who gave me the criticism that I didn't want to hear in the moment but I needed to hear in the long run. And those are the people who, you know, even though they might not always uh, be you know, shielding my ego, they actually are investing in my growth and my performance over time. So what's the best way to do that, to be a disagreeable giver? Well, I think as an agreeable person who's worked hard to get better at this, I think the most important thing is to recognize that the effect of what you say always depends on how you say it. So one of my favorite experiments showed that you could say about 19 words to dramatically increase people's openness to criticism. And those 19 words are roughly, I'm giving you these comments because I have very high expectations and I'm confident that you're going to reach them. Completely changes the relationship, right? I'm not, I'm not judging you. I'm not attacking you. I'm here to coach you. And I actually taught that in class right after that research came out. And then I gave out my mid-course feedback forums and three different students had written at the top, I'm giving you these <laughs> comments because I have very high expectations and I'm confident. And I'm like, no, no, me. you don't have to use the words. It's, it's the signal that you believe in my potential and you care about my success, right? And I think that's the most important thing to do before you challenge somebody or criticize them. And then the other thing I think that's, that's pretty important is I've started asking people to assess their own performance before I give them feedback. Okay. 
so I would say, hey, um, you know, I was I was observing to to see if I could identify anything that might help you. Um, I'm happy to give you a couple tips, but. I would actually love to learn from your analysis of your own Brilliant. performance and try to calibrate what I'm seeing against what you've noticed. Um, what did you think well, went well and what were your notes for yourself? And then I know that some of my points are not going to surprise you because you already anticipated them. But I also have a sense of what your blind spots might be. And I can say, oh, you know, I was, I was intrigued that you didn't mention this. And I'd love to hear your thought on that. So can you give us an example of that, Adam, of where you've used those two, that 19-word technique and then that second technique that's had quite a profound impact on uh, on the recipient. <laughs> yeah, I've got I've got a lot of examples. Uh, let me let me give you one that was a tricky situation for me. So during COVID, I got a call from the founder of a wildly successful startup saying, "I'm having trouble with culture, and I'm being told that that we have a, a culture of takers rather than givers, basically." And I know this is something you study a lot, uh, trying to figure out how to get to the bottom of this. So I end up, uh, end up going to a session with the senior leadership team. And I see this person basically <laughs> check off all the boxes of what I would advise a leader, a leader not to do. Uh, dominating the conversation, interrupting other people, uh, dismissing their ideas in a way that almost comes across as demeaning. And so after the session, uh, my job is, is to try to give some feedback as the outsider. And I, I start the conversation and I, I just ask a simple question, which is, how do you think that went? And he says, well, I think, I think it went pretty well. You know, I think we, we made the following decisions and I was really happy with, um, you know, with the, the buy-in I got for this particular direction. <laughs> okay, there's a, there's a gap of self-awareness here. And... I said, all right, well, let me just reinforce what my role is, which is you brought me in to hold up a mirror for you. And I don't have, I don't have answers for you. I don't have solutions. Um, but I think I can maybe help you see your own behavior more clearly. And um, in the spirit of doing that, I was more interested in how other people thought that went. How do you think they thought it went? And he was like, I don't know. I didn't really think about that. Well, why is that? Because um, to me, your first job as a leader is to try to elevate the people around you. Your success depends on making them successful, right? That's why you're in charge of other people as opposed to just being an independent solo operator. And I remember him, him coming back and saying, you know, I, I really have to think about that because I have goals. And so my success was, did I meet the goals or not? And he ended up going and, and getting the feedback from his team. And some of them sugarcoated it. But there were one or two, there were two, I think, actually, who, who said, you know, honestly... Like, this was not an effective meeting, and we had a bunch of ideas that got squashed. And even if you think those were bad ideas, you are building a culture where ideas can't be heard. And that means you're going to miss the good ones, too. And you're going to pretty soon be surrounded by a bunch of yes men and women who, when you come to work in the morning and you say good morning, are all going to say, great point. And is that who you want to be? No. And I didn't have to do a whole lot in that situation, right? It was just kind of prompting him to say, well, have I really gotten feedback from other people? But sometimes I, I can imagine that that puts you in quite an uncomfortable position, being the guy that's holding the mirror, you know. And so I'm interested of how do you make a determination of whether you're actually going to invest in that relationship that because you feel you can help them improve or what are the sort of triggers that you would identify to say, I need to just walk away from here? Well, I usually start by saying, I'm a terrible consultant. You don't want to hire me. To, to give you ongoing advice. 
there are, I think, two ways that I can be helpful. One of which is I can try to give people a common language to talk about the challenges they're running into and the goals they're trying to achieve that, that they're missing, right? Which is, I think, what, what, what often becomes a catalyst for change is for people to be able to describe. It's something like saying, okay, you have a star culture, which you think is a perfect meritocracy. Um, but in fact, you have some people who are rising in, um, you know, for reasons that are unrelated to their performance. And you have some people who are failing to get opportunities despite their excellent performance. And so how are you going to find the holes in, in that system and then, you know, try to make it more meritocratic? Uh, and all of a sudden saying, oh, well, we're, you know, we're over rewarding our superstars who have great individual results. Um, and we're underappreciating the culture carriers, um, you know, the the givers behind the scenes who are making other people better. That's a catalyst, right? I, you don't need me anymore. Um, I've walked you through the, the data behind that, but you can now figure out how to change that in your own environment. And then the other the other approach is to say um, where I think I can I can add value is if you actually want to systematically study the problem you're interested in or the goal you're trying to achieve. So if I can come in and do an experiment. If I can gather longitudinal data, then at the end of this project, we're going to be able to teach other people what you learned. And that's a signal to me that you're committed to learning for the long haul, uh, not just you know looking for a quick fix or trying to have somebody else fight your fires for you. Uh, and that's a pretty good filter for me. If you want to go beyond just, I'll give a talk or I'll have a conversation with you, uh, you better be committed to not only running an experiment, but wanting to gather data about the results. Your thoughts and comments are so helpful, Adam. I mean, particularly for Brits like us, because we've all been brought up in a society where if you're disagreeable, that's a negative. And if you're agreeable, that's a positive. So we all walk around agreeing with each other when there's a voice in our head saying, I'm not really sure that I agree, but I better say I do, because otherwise it's seen as negative, um, which is unhealthy. You know, Jake, it's, it's, it's funny that you say that because uh, I lived in the UK for a while and I came home feeling like, I was always, as an agreeable person, concerned about politeness. And the degree of politeness that was normative in British culture, at least when I was there, made me uncomfortable. I kept having conversations where, where people would just kind of nod and you know, validate my ideas. And I started to feel like if two people never disagree, it means at least one of them is not thinking critically or speaking candidly. And that is a disservice to a relationship. Right? If, you, if you can't tell me the truth, then you're actually hindering my ability to learn from you. I didn't know it was going to happen. But one of the effects of, um, of, of going across the pond and then, and then coming back was to say, you know, I think the, the fundamental challenge of being an agreeable person or living in an agreeable culture uh, or even just you know, having an agreeable team right, is people feel a conflict between honesty and loyalty. And what I tell every person I work with is I see no conflict. To me, the highest expression of loyalty is honesty. The more candid you are with me, the more I will know that you care about me. So if you ever hesitate because you're afraid of hurting my feelings or hurting our relationship, don't. The only way you can hurt me is by not telling me the truth. And that just, it just erodes the politeness norms in, a, in an interaction because all of a sudden people realize, well, yeah, being polite is protecting your feelings in the moment, but being kind is actually helping you get better in the future. To try and bring this into our own lives, is this about communication? Because I'm thinking of people I know who have fired colleagues because I'm, why, why have they left? Oh, we kept on, we, we, we couldn't agree. Or even I have friends who've divorced. Why have you divorced? We just got to a point where we disagreed on everything. 
like it's a negative. So even if it's opened our eyes to the fact that actually disagreeing doesn't mean that you can't, you know, um, relate or coexist, how do we get the other person to understand that when I disagree with you, I'm not coming at you, I'm not being aggressive, I, I, you know, I don't want to fight here. This is a disagreement based purely on respect for you and me. I think the framing is is important. So, I mean, as as a, a psychologist, my first inclination is is always to bring the the evidence to the table and say, look, research shows that the quality of a relationship, and also actually whether your kids end up well adjusted if you have kids, um, is not about how often you fight. It's about how constructively you fight. You know, kids who are raised in homes where parents never argue, uh, never learn to work out their differences, and that turns out to be unhealthy for them. Kids who are raised in, in families where, where parents disagree respectfully, um, they learn to speak up. They learn to listen to people who have a different point of view. Um, and that's ultimately you know, good for their resilience as well as their, their ability to have thoughtful disagreements. So I, I like to talk about that right up front and, and set that as a context when I'm, <laughs> I'm interacting with somebody. Um, for, for people who wouldn't do that, I think the simpler way to do this might be to say, I have a style of working out my thoughts, which is to debate. And sometimes that makes me seem like a prosecuting attorney, right? Which is, you know, I'm just, I'm trying to, to shoot down everything you say, and I'm always trying to prove you wrong. But that's actually how I pressure test my own arguments. That's how I, I sharpen my own thinking. And if I take the time to disagree with you, it means that your opinion matters to me. Right? If I didn't care about your opinion, I wouldn't bother to argue with it. I'd say, <laughs> screw you. Like, why am, I, why am I bothering to talk to you? And so my, my engaging in an argument is a sign that, that I care and that I care about you. And you know, I may argue really forcefully, but I expect you to do the same thing back. And I want this to be like a debate. And then you know, my wife will say, like, I'm not your debating <laughs> partner. I don't want to have a three-hour discussion about everything we disagree on. That may not be necessary. And I think what, what I've tried to land on there is to say, it's important to agree on core values. And it's important to disagree on the best way to live those values, because I don't know, and neither does anybody else. And we're kind of trying to figure it out as we go along. Because my follow-up question was going to be, at what point do we make the decision that actually we're not just constructively disagreeing on a few things here, like this just isn't happening and it isn't right? How, how do people, how do you work out when you've reached that point? Yeah, I think where I start to get concerned is when somebody starts saying, well, let's just agree to disagree, right? Which is a, a sign that they're ready to give up. And I would like to believe I'm capable of having a thoughtful disagreement with anyone about anything. And so that's a sign to me that I failed, right? Because I have come across as either because I went into prosecutor mode or because I, you know, I was, I was preaching that I was so excited about my own point of view uh, I, I signaled to them that, you know, I was basically too stubborn to change my mind. And so what I will do when that happens is I will say, hey, I don't actually believe in agreeing to disagree. Uh, to me, if you say let's agree to disagree, it means that I need to stop trying to persuade and I need to start trying to learn. And so can you tell me what I screwed up in this conversation that made you feel like this was a lost cause? And Sometimes people don't even want to give the feedback. <laughs> I'll say, okay, if, if you do not want to have a conversation about how we can have better conversations, then maybe we shouldn't be having conversations anymore. But if you're, if you're willing to tell me, you know, here's where you lost me and here's what you did, I can start to look for a pattern. Have I done that before with other people? Is this a topic that brings out the worst in me? And then I can try to course correct it next time. But I think one of your superpowers, Adam, having listened to you here is the ability to provide clarity 
for the terms of any relationship. I think when you speak about going in as a consultant to a business and agreeing the terms of which you're going to go in and consult with them or whether it's in a relationship, agreeing the clarity of like that phrase that you used about honesty and kindness and not are not mutually exclusive. They're one and the same thing. So what I'm interested in is any quick tips beyond the one that you said about building that relationship, first of all, that our listeners can do to create a culture of clarity in terms of the of, of engagement for any relationship. <laughs> you call it a superpower. Uh, I say it's a weakness that reared its ugly head one too many times. And I, I've been in so many situations where I've regretted not clarifying expectations. And then I've been disappointed by someone and then kind of wake up the next morning and realize, wait, when I'm, when I'm disappointed in you, it's not because of your actions. It's because your actions clashed yeah. with my expectations. And I never told you what my expectations were. So why, why am I disappointed in you? I should be disappointed in me. I guess if you're trying to set the terms for clarity in any relationship, the most important thing that I've learned to do is to ask why are you here? I gave so many pieces of bad advice or unwanted advice uh, to students, to, you know, to athletes, to entrepreneurs. In every walk of life where I was trying to apply psychology, people would come and then I would tell them about the best evidence I knew. And it just missed the mark because I didn't know what they were trying to accomplish. And so even just asking, um, you know, when you come to me for advice on a decision or a dilemma, are you looking uh, to basically get my stamp of approval? Do you want validation? Because you already have it. I want whatever you believe is going to bring you success and happiness. And if you believe that this is the right choice for you, who am I to tell you otherwise? I'm not you. Are you here to widen your options? Do you want me to help you think about possibilities you haven't considered? Are you here because you want me to really decimate your reasoning and you're worried that you might be making the wrong decision and you're bringing me to be part of your challenge network? And once I know that, it's a completely different conversation. And I think that asking that, obviously, if you're on the, you know, the mentoring or advising side or coaching side is, is invaluable. But I think sharing that if you're the person who's, who's coming to seek advice, right? Not to just say, could you give me advice on this? But here is the goal of seeking advice. In a lot of cases, I will go to multiple people when I'm seeking advice, and then they're disappointed that I didn't follow their advice. And what I realized was I forgot to tell them right. that like, I have a whole challenge network. And I know that one person's view might be objective quality, or it might be idiosyncratic taste. And the only way I can separate those two things is to ask a bunch of independent people and then see where they converge and where they diverge. And so the fact that I didn't take your advice doesn't mean I didn't value your opinion. It's that I wasn't <laughs> looking for you to tell me what to do. I was looking to gather a bunch of information and then synthesize those different perspectives and make an informed decision based on that. And I think you have a, you know, a particular... Um, perspective, just like I do, I do, but both of ours are incomplete. And so I wanted to round those out. And I think just, you know, just trying to clarify that on both sides is my most important advice. And that was not a quick tip. No, it wasn't, but it was a brilliant one. So thank you. Thanks for sharing it. We're about to move on to our quick fire questions, Adam. Before we do though, with everything that you've learned and all the amazing knowledge that you've shared with us, is imposter syndrome still alive and well in your life? Or have you found a way of quelling it? I don't believe in treating it as a syndrome. Like it's a chronic debilitating disease. Uh, I guess there are people who walk around feeling like I am an actual fraud and I've never been qualified for any role I got. I got lucky in every success I ever achieved and it's only a matter of minutes until everyone finds out. 
That is extremely rare. What's much more common, if you look at Basima Tufik's research on this, is imposter thoughts. The everyday flickers of doubt, of wondering, am I as good as other people think I am? And if you don't have those, you're at risk for arrogance or narcissism. If you never doubt whether other people are overestimating you, then you are not putting yourself in a position to keep growing and challenging yourself. And so I think it's actually really important to have those imposter thoughts. And Basima shows that they motivate you to work harder and longer sometimes. And that they also motivate you to learn more from other people because you know there's a gap between where you are and where you want to be. And you don't have all the answers. And so you've, you've got to try to close the gap. So for me, yeah, I have imposter thoughts almost every stage I get on. You know, there's a moment where I think, why should this audience learn from me? And uh, a colleague of mine, Hadla Thomas-Dotter, who I think is a brilliant leader and uh, really skilled at turning imposter syndrome into fuel, uh, taught me something that I I apply in those situations. She says, if you're going to ask, why me? You should also ask, why not me? Brilliant. Right. Quick fire questions, Adam Grant. Your three non-negotiable behaviors that you and the people around you should buy into. Ooh, three non-negotiable behaviors. Um, one is striving for excellence. Two is uh, being candid with each other. And three is trying to focus not on our individual success, but on our collective contribution. If you could go back to one period in your life, where would you go and why? I would go back to yesterday and I would spend a little bit more time thinking through what's the most valuable information I can share today so I ramble less. What's your biggest strength? What's your greatest weakness? <laughs> my, my greatest weakness is probably that I have a really hard time letting go of a goal when I get attached to it. And I end up in escalation of commitment to losing courses of action a lot. And I know it drives the people around me crazy and sometimes gets me in, in trouble too, which is why I wrote a whole book on why we need to think again. Uh, I think if I had a greatest strength, it's probably, it's, it's, the, it's the flip side of that, right? I think most, most weaknesses are strengths overused and misused. And I think probably my greatest strength is uh, my ability to lock into a goal and, uh, and not let it go and, and persevere. And finally, Adam, what's your one golden rule to live a high-performance life? I, I think for me, high-performance is, is about recognizing that the most meaningful way to succeed is to help other people succeed. It's, it's hard in the, in the span of you know, years and decades to keep finding meaning in climbing a mountain yourself. But being able to lift other people up to the top of that mountain, that creates a sustainable sense of purpose. And I think it, it comes right back to where we started, which is if you know who's counting on you, then it's not difficult to find your motivation. Thank you so much. Cheers. Well, what an interesting guy Adam Grant is. So that was where we left the conversation with Adam. But actually, then we went on to have a really fascinating debrief about the conversation that we just had. And it was the first time, really, that a guest had said to Damien and I, don't you, don't you ask for feedback when you interview people? And we said, well, no, not really. We kind of do the interview and, and thank people politely. And he said, how can you sit in front of some of the world's greatest high performers and not ask them for their feedback? And actually, it's totally changed the way that we approach these high performance podcast conversations. So if you'd like to hear the extended episode, 
and hear Adam talking to Damien and I about the power of feedback, um, then all you need to do is subscribe to High Performance Plus. Click the link, become a subscriber and get some additional content that's really valuable right now. Damien. Jake. Uh, it makes me realise that I've lived my life assuming people's reaction to things I'm about to do, but I've never set expectations for what I'm about to do. So yeah. I've never said to them at the beginning, this is because I care, or we're going to do this because this is what I think, or even, you know, even something like, um, you know, everyday life things, like where do we go for dinner? You know, setting people's expectations, like, listen, I think as a family, we should go here for this reason. And then let the kids or Harriet say where they think. Do you know what I mean? It's not just big yeah, yeah. life-changing conversations. It's, it's, it's all the way through. It's like, I suppose really what I get from him is that life is a negotiation. It's a conversation. It's a two-way thing. Yeah, but I think that idea of setting the parameters of that conversation. So, you know, like that bit when he said, people come and ask your opinion and you say, can I just clarify? Are you looking for me to validate it? Are you looking for me to critique it? Are you looking for me just to listen and not say anything? I think that way then, it's often when you manage it, the expectations of both parties, that's where the real value comes from. And disappointment, as he said, is often where it's disappointment in ourselves because we haven't clarified what uh, what the rules of engagement were. And um, that lovely line he said at the end, you know, if if what I've done is the only thing that people see of me, um, what would they think of it? Did I get that right? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would I be proud of it? Yeah, and I think that's a really powerful question to ask. I know, I know we've had this debate recently, haven't we, when we've been talking about the uh, the podcast and the impact, and it's that, Sometimes we worry about repeating some of the same messages or going over the same lines. But I think if that's the only line that anybody's ever going to hear of this, would we be proud? Would we stand by some of those messages? And I think the answer is yes. It's great. Thank you, mate. Oh, I loved it. Thanks. Yeah, that was a real privilege. Now, though, it's time to talk about the high performance community, because without you listening to this podcast and sharing your stories with us, there is no high performance community. Thank you to everyone that reaches out and tells us the journey they've been on and how the podcast has helped them. And we love to put those people on our episodes of High Performance. So let's do it right now and meet someone who's listened to and been helped by the High Performance podcast. Not only did we get a lovely message from this person, we also got some great photos as well of him wearing his All In t-shirt and his Winners Take Control t-shirt that he bought from the High Performance merchandise store. I'll tell you what. He's looking good in them as well. Uh, Jermaine Blackwood, nice to see you, man. How are you doing, Jake? Good to see you. You okay? Very well, thank you. So you sent us a message and you said that you're a husband of five years, a father of two. You started out on a council estate in Derby. You worked on a car production line at the age of 20 before quitting that job and starting an access course, then getting your undergraduate degree at Derby University onto King's College London to do a postgrad in sports law, then eventually onto Liverpool University to complete an MBA. I just want to know where this drive to better yourself constantly has come from, because that is impressive, man. I'd say my drive actually came from not having anything growing up as a kid. So there was four of us living in a council house, um, as well as my mum. So she had four children living in a council house. Um, I was in my mum's bedroom till the age of nine or ten. So you can imagine how crammed that house was. I always said to myself that I wanted better for myself uh, growing up. Uh, my mum did the best she could. She did the best she could. She raised four of us all on her own. She worked a job as well 
seven till four o'clock every day. Uh, so it must have been, I can imagine it was really stressful for her. We never had any holidays growing up as children. We never had any sleepovers or anything like that. My mum did the best she could. It was very stressful for her. She worked seven o'clock till four o'clock every day. Um, so that's where my drive came from. I just thought to myself when I was younger, she'd gone through all that. So I achieved working in the car manufacturing plant at, by the age of 19, 20 years old. And I just thought to myself, you know what? Um, I felt like I could achieve more. So I decided to go to university and I knew what I wanted to do at the end of my university university degree course so I just worked backwards and I was really driven and I think some of my drive and determination also come from uh, being a bit of an underdog as well so a lot of people just thought that I would end up working in McDonald's or something like that and that sort of drives you to an extent so my reasons was to obviously provide for my future family things like um holidays um sleepovers a close family unit things like that so that, that's where my driving determination came from so that I, I think we we missed out on that unfortunately growing up as as uh, kids you said on your email that the concept of fault and responsibility means a lot to you and has an impact on your life in the last couple of years could you in uh, i don't know 60 seconds explain to us why that's so important oh, i'll give you an example everyone's suffering at the minute in terms of the energy crisis and that is nobody's fault it's not my fault personally it's nobody's fault but how I respond to that is the only thing that's in my control so a lot of people who I've spoken to about it will be negative rightly so but for me I will flip that on its head and I feel there's nothing I can do it's not my fault that I'm in the position of paying high prices for gas and electric but what can I do differently go to bed early, wake up early, uh, get on the ball, earn more money. And I feel that's myself taking responsibility in terms of bringing more money into the household to offset those rising prices. If you were to share two brilliant messages that have made a difference to you from high performance with the listeners right now, what would they be? I think Vicky Patterson's episode was really good. I feel the need to look after yourself before you can take care of others is paramount because how can I give my wife or my child 100% of myself unless I'm looking after myself mentally, health and fitness wise. So I feel that's one message. And also I feel Van Persie's message in terms of winners take responsibility. Instead of blaming out external factors just focus on what you could control and take 100 100% responsibility i love it listen mate i think um your story is fantastic because you know what we haven't even got onto is that after all of that hard work and after all those degrees and everything you know you you thought your life was going to be working as a football agent you start the job you hate the <laughs> yeah. job um and you're brave enough to uh, realize it was more to life and to walk away from that and you're now doing spanish and german language courses i just love your constant desire for growth and i think that my favorite line is at the end of the email when you say i feel there's more room for further growth and improvement with everything that i'm doing um and i think that that is going to carry you 
a really long way. So thank you so much for joining us, Jermaine. That's a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you, Jake. Well, there you go. Um, I'd love to know what you made of that. Please reach out on social media and let me know. And don't forget, we're bringing high performance around the UK. Uh, If you want to come and see us live in person for not a live podcast show, but a live theatre show that gets right to the heart of high performance. We'll talk about it more in the coming weeks on the podcast. Um, But if you want to come, just go to thehighperformancepodcast.com forward slash live 2023. That's thehighperformancepodcast.com forward slash live 2023. Listen, thank you so much for growing and sharing this podcast among your community. Please continue to spread the learnings you're taking from this series. Thanks to the whole team behind the scenes, but most of all, thanks to you. Remember, there is no secret. It is all there for you. So chase world-class basics. Don't get high on your own supply. Remain humble, curious, and empathetic. And we'll see you soon. Bye for now. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.